And welcome to the Dear Warren podcast, where we share stories, principles, parables, and lessons, pass them down to my son, Warren. This podcast for Thursday, February 7th, 2019. Nope, nope, we're not doing a monthly release of the podcast. It's just been that busy. And I am only one guy, folks. Uh, this is the continuation of the last bit of pre-recorded episodes from October of 2018. And it features our good friend, Ayanti Ganawardena. Ayanti is a jiu-jitsu practitioner, and she works in government transportation and is an appreciator and aficionado of all things puns. This was a great discussion about her training in jiu-jitsu, education, and data science in transportation, um, a bunch of topics. And I had a lot of fun, and I hope everyone else does too as we present to you Ayanti this is the Dear Warren Podcast. Hello, and I am here with Ayanti. Hello, Ayanti. Hi, Eki. It's wonderful for you to come out here. What I like to joke about now, because it's been for the past like five or six podcasts, wonderful podcast weather. <laughs> Which uh, you were saying when you were coming up uh, from, I think, Holmdel, that it yep. was actually a lot rainier down there. Oh, yeah. It was raining pretty hard. I was going way slower on the parkway than I normally do. And this, I think we were supposed to expect nor'easter. Did it happen already? Or are we in the middle of it? I don't know. Or... If, is it that we're supposed to get the nor'easter? Or are we mm. getting like the remnants of a nor'easter from... Whatever it is, it whatever, sucks. Yeah. It's just, it's your typical, like, you walk outside... Warren, you were just outside as well, too, in just his hoodie. He had a Paw Patrol hat on. We Aww. went to, like, it was like a Paw Patrol event at Target, and uh, he wore his chase, like, cap. He didn't want to wear the full thing, but it was just that nice, you know, less than 40 degrees, windy, not even, like, heavy rain, just that mist, but, like, oh, the wind man. blows. the annoying in the, rain. Yeah, the annoying the rain. The annoying rain. You ever see Forrest Gump? Yeah. Where he's, like, uh, ex explain all the types of rain is, like, a little bit of sideways, stinging rain. It, that, that was... <laughs> That was pretty much it. But I, I want to thank you so much for coming out. And thank you for having me. I recall that uh, I was reading some of your comments and you said it was actually really cool to hear some of these podcasts with people that you actually know. Yeah. So like Adam and Karen were the first people, the first episodes I listened to because I knew who they were. And then I was like, you know, what? I, might, I might as well check out the other episodes. Mm -hmm. And I normally listen to podcasts where I know the guests well or I know the hosts well. Mm -hmm. So like. I know you. I don't know you well, because when I say no well, I mean it's a super famous person. <laughs> but wow, that hurt. I'm kidding. I'm not serious. Like I said, it is its own little community. We have our own little community here for for the pod, pod, podcast. But please go on. Yes. But yeah, so I started listening to a lot of the other guests who I didn't really know, but they mm. seem to have interesting careers and trajectories. And I was like, oh, I, so I listen to it now. When I'm working, when I'm waiting for code to run, when I'm analyzing stuff, and you can, I don't have to focus completely. Awesome. <laughs> I think you also kind of hit uh, the nail on the head when you when you basically said that you know you listen to podcasts, but this is actually kind of cool because you get to hear people that you know know, yeah. as in like Adam or or Karen, and uh, you you've actually hit kind of a little bit of the secret sauce of what uh, Jess and I were attempting to do with the podcast, which is. Um, try to keep it in, in this format of long form conversation, but to keep it to people that we actually know. And uh, to, to, so hopefully one day, maybe they'll introduce it to their friends and then suddenly 
hey, maybe you can have my friend on. Like, oh, well, I know you, so might as well have your friend on as well, too. And so you kind of get like that Kevin Bacon six degrees of separation. But somehow we're all kind of interconnected to one another and having these really great, uh, deep, meaningful conversations. Uh, Or I I hope they're deep and meaningful for some people. (laughs) Yeah, I think they're... That's the thing. It's just Mm -hmm. people, everyone has their own stories. Absolutely. Right? And even if you're not famous or well-known or notorious for something like you have something worth sharing and experiences that you feel impacted your life. Well, I'm glad to have you on as far as sharing experiences, because we both share in uh, martial arts, in jujitsu once again. And thank you for contributing to once again, the very high percentage. I like to joke about it every once in a while. I would say maybe like 98% of the people that we have on, uh, we've either rolled with each other or we've done jujitsu or we knew someone in the jujitsu community uh, together. As you can see, it's pretty small. And it's very at the same, small. It's small, but at the same time, it's uh, uh, concentrated in this podcast. It's like every other person does jujitsu. <laughs> How's that going for you? It's going well. Um, I live in the city and train at uh, Shaolin's on, in Midtown. It's 8th Avenue between 47th and 48th. Um, it's been going well, and I feel like I've sort of, as my GDC journey has gone on, it'll be nine years in August. Wow. Yep. Nine years. Sorry, not in August, in January. That's awesome. Nine, yeah. That is awesome. I'm trying to think of people who have like nine years in anything, but that, that's... <laughs> Once you start hitting double digits, it's nuts, right? It's it's insane. It doesn't feel like nine years. No, nine doesn't. years just sounds much longer than it really is. And what level are you now these days? I am a purple belt. Awesome. And how is all that training going for you at, at the moment? Is it uh, something where you're into it as far as like five, seven days a week? Is it... You know, I used to be the kind of person that was going five, six days a week, sometimes morning and night classes. And especially over the past year, I've been tapering back a little i've been going like three three days or so a week less less the past couple weeks i've been super busy with work but i realized that i think a lot of people when they start jujitsu they get super excited they're really into it they get obsessed and they start coming all the time and i realized that when i started doing that i had i was dropping a lot of my other hobbies and interests i just wasn't dedicating the time and i said i even thought i was like you know i haven't picked up my guitar in like three years and I hadn't read books that I'd wanted to read and I hadn't gone to places I wanted to go and I said you know like jiu-jitsu is fun but it's not my life it's not my job I don't I'm not competing at worlds you know I have other goals and I have other interests and I was starting to become more one-dimensional than I would like to be and you I think we were mentioning this before on on, uh before we even started the podcast it's there is a very uh uh, strong jujitsu culture and oh yeah and sometimes that culture can promote the you know train seven days a week uh 365 days a year uh 24 hours a day if you can oh, right yeah. don't sleep just keep training don't don't have food or whatever just keep training so why don't you go into that a little bit so yeah i just feel like people in jujitsu or a lot of people in jujitsu feel that if you come if you are, if you come less than a few than five days a week, you're a quote unquote hobbyist, and you are somehow less than people who are filthy there. casuals. Oh yeah, casuals, hobbyists, part timers, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. But and that sort of collective pressure, mm-hmm. I feel like makes people feel they have to come. And I've heard people say, "Oh man, I haven't trained in a week," and you know, I feel bad when I haven't trained in a week just because I've been inactive mm-hmm. and sort of just 
hanging out and not doing anything and inactive, but they're like, oh, like I just need to go. I need to go to, otherwise I'm going to fall behind. And how old are these, uh, training partners? <laughs> Shaland is interesting. We have, I feel like we have a lot more people now in their thirties and forties. Mm-hmm. And when I had first trained there in 2011, there are a lot more people in their twenties. Mm. So one of the things I like about Shaland's is it doesn't necessarily encourage like, you got to come five days or you're a slacker, man. Mm-hmm. Like there are people who have, like, it's such a diverse range of people. You have lawyers, teachers, cops, doctors, city workers like me. So everyone has their own lives outside of jiu-jitsu. And we all have fun when we're together, but it's not a, it's not as obsessive as some places can be. What do you think, um, as far as the context for people that do have to train seven days a week, do you think it's because of that, no other hobbies or this is their life or maybe a combination of like the pressure? What do you think it was? I think some people, it's just jujitsu is so different than anything most people have ever done, even as far as other martial arts go. So I think just people get very excited. And especially when you start getting good at it, you get this idea that you can be the best at it or really good at it and you can get all these medals and don't get me wrong there are certainly people that can and do that and it's good for them but everyone else i think feels the need to do that when they see people like them also doing that um and jiu-jitsu is kind of strange it's the only sport where i feel people compare themselves to very high level people (laughs) like high school basketball players and don't really compare themselves to michael jordan or lebron james but I think a lot of people in jiu-jitsu will compare themselves to, like, the high-level athletes at a certain... Why do you think that is? I think they just they feel that... I even heard one day someone did some half-guard sweep or played half-guard. He was like, well, like that half-guard sweep is fine now, but, like, if, Buche- if you went against Buchesha, it wouldn't work. And I was like, I'm not training to, to go against him. You know what I mean? For wow. some reason, people seem to want to train... Relative I want to, to learn the, the technique to beat the world-class black belt. Exactly. And it's. I think part of it is that jiu-jitsu is also one of the few sports where you can train directly with the highest level yes, people. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. Shalin, he's a three-time black belt world, world champion. I think his MMA record's 20 and 5. Mm-hmm. He was winning all the lightweight titles in MMA before the UFC had a lightweight division. Marcelo like, has won everything you could win. Hensel's in Manhattan, like... They have tons of MMA fighters. So you're just around these people and people for some reason always feel the need to compare themselves to their instructors. It's one of those lessons that I was taught um, early on. I forgot who said, I, I may have mentioned it on the podcast, but not to compare yourself with others, but to compare yourself to their own, to your own potential. In other words, if you were you today, tomorrow, you should be working to be a slightly better version of, of, a, of who you were the other day. That's how it should be. Right. Like, I think people lose focus on of that. And I think pe- jiu-jitsu people are very caught up in the belt system. But now you have people like 17, 18, 19-year-olds who are training all day. Mm-hmm. Like there are some, I know there's people in California who homeschool their kids so they can train like two, three times a day. This is probably, you think it's, got, it's gone beyond just... Uh, uh, at that point, as, as we joked about a hobby, and I think it's uh, gone beyond just like participation in a sport. This is probably lifestyle for them at that point, right? Yeah. And it's one of the other things is that 
people in jiu-jitsu get injured all the time mm. from overtraining. I still think the proper recovery and training in jiu-jitsu is not there yet. Like, we don't have the knowledge or people are not willing to delve into that. But people almost glorify the fact that they're taped up all the time. I've torn, like, I've torn this. This is twisted. This is that. And I was like, you shouldn't. Like, <laughs> you know, when you're active, you're going to get some injuries. But I feel like people in jiu-jitsu almost glorify a lot of these you think it's that you think it's uh, the lack of context, meaning not, not in a, in an offensive way, but lack of context as in if this is the only thing in your life, then of course the you're going to want to have a bit of the machismo of oh look how long I've trained, look how uh, what how, yeah, how fast a, I recover from an ACL tear versus um, if you had jujitsu and um, let's say you had to work uh, for as a city worker for the government, mm-hmm. as you said, it's kind of like. Dude, I have to go to work the next day. I need my sleep. Yeah, like I, I have to... a life beyond this. If I get a black eye, that's not a good look for me coming into work <laughs> the next day. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, I think people also be like, yeah, I broke my finger, but I just taped it up, but I kept going. I didn't <laughs> stop training. And, you know, a lot of these high level jujitsu athletes are going to be in wheelchairs in mm-hmm. the next 10 years if they don't. Like when you see people just toughing out heel hooks and not tapping to stuff. That's not good. That's not cool, you know? Can you go into the uh, explanation of what a heel hook does to a person? Because I don't think mm-hmm. we've actually ever gone into... Because we talk about chokes and arm bars all the time. I don't think once we've ever actually gone over like what the actual effects of it. So go for it. Go for it. A heel hook. So a heel hook, it's a leg lock that goes from 0 to 100 relatively quickly. And basically, so you are twisting the heel and... It can, it can tear your ACL very easily. You basically, use, when you tap normally, it's from a little bit of pain, but this, mm-hmm. you feel tightness and then it's a tear. So you have to be, it's a very high risk, high reward move, but there are some high level black belts. You'll see them at ADCC and tournament. I don't know if you've seen the second match of, it's Gary Tonin versus one of the meows. Mm-hmm. He has him in this heel hook. I forget if it's Paul. I think it's Paulo. He had him in, in the, the, in the reverse heel hook, right? Yeah. Like the worst one. would not tap. And you can hear it on the video. You can hear it? You can hear it popping. You can hear it popping and cry. Oh, yeah. I can't watch that. It's so... Ah. So like... And he ended up losing the match. But he... I think he probably... He must have had to have been carried out on a stretcher. Like he stood up at the end. But that guy... And if you... There's another video of him in an IBJJF tournament in the Gi. Someone has him in a toehold. His... Why don't you explain toes. that? Why don't you explain the toe hold and what it does? Okay, so toe hold, you basically you have your hand on the instep of your their foot, and you are bending that front part of their foot downwards and mm. twisting. Mm-hmm. So this guy Meow's foot was basically folded in half, and he wouldn't tap. The guy's looking at the ref, and the ref's like, you know, if he's not there's tapping, there's a video of that. Yeah, I saw that. A video video. Of that. He's like, what the what the fuck are you going to call this or not? Like, like <laughs> what is that? Like, he's like, he's not tapping. <laughs> And, like, maybe it's worth it for someone who does this as a career. Even then, like, he worked his way through it and ended up winning the match. But at what cost? Mm -hmm. Like, how is he going to be able to walk in five years? And if it's not your job, like, you shouldn't be the one toughing out heel hooks and foot locks and arm bars. It is very interesting that you do mention that this is the only sport where where people try to emulate, like, Mm -hmm. really emulate their, their heroes. I, I don't think you really hear anyone say, "Oh no, I'm, I'm going to tough it out like, uh, 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 like like Gotti," uh, you know? Yeah. And and just take a uh, hundred shots to my head. 
And it's like, no, 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 no. no. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. But for some reason, it's kind of like, oh, I can hold out on a heel hook. Oh, yeah, that's not going to, especially, for, as you said, for people who, who aren't on, let's say, the on a kind of like a professional track. Because there is, yeah. there is some fame. There is some money that can be made out of it still. It's especially still a, now. And maybe it is where if you are, <coughs> like, if you're in the Black Boat World Finals or the semifinals, I understand toughing out something. But if you are a blue belt doing the New York Open and it's your second match of the day, and you are just toughing out an ankle lock mm-hmm. and waiting for your ankle to break. That's not worth it, you know? What's the, what's the worst injury you have seen live, like when you, when you were there? Worst injury I've seen live? Hmm. That's a tough one. Is it because you've seen so many? And you're trying to I'm trying to think down. of like... Just think of one. Okay, so I saw once someone... Someone went to take this girl's back, but she was standing, mm-hmm. and her knee went completely straight, oh, and no. it just, like, hyperextended. Oh, no, the other way. The other it way. bent the other way. Oh! Yeah. How far did it bend? I couldn't see because she fell. Oh, no! So it was very quick, oh, but no. I, I saw the bend, and it was just, like... Oh, people are cringing yeah. on this. And I... The worst injury I had... Injuries I've yeah. had are generally freak accidents, so when I was a white belt, I was in class. Someone jumped guard on me. Oh, and no. I tore my MCL, my knee bent inward. Ooh. That was, that's some of the worst pain I, I felt ever. My, my freak accident, I was sprawling on, so this was very, very early, before I even started actually like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I did like, you know, no-gi grappling at it, like an MMA school, but I sprawled on a guy, my foot got caught in the mat, and then my, my knee uh, dislocated uh, out and in, you know, to the outside, the patella. Ooh. But it sounded like a gunshot. At least to me, it sounded like a gunshot. And I had a grade two MCL tear. Oh, that was me. I had, it was between a grade two and a grade three oh, for me. So, was, oh. Yeah. And I'm still, I'm, and even up to this day, I still have like some recovery that I still have to do. This was years ago. I never really did the proper PT to strengthen the, <laughs> the quad muscle around that. The worst I've seen was actually at a kids or a teens division at Anaga like oh. years and years ago women's division girls division she had a uh, close guard and she caught uh, the girl in a kimura started cranking it oh is it where i think i've seen the video of this yeah. basically uh it, it cranked you hear it yeah. and the and the girl who actually did this submission who who won the match screamed she was the one who screamed yeah. the other girl didn't <laughs> scream she goes ah because she didn't expect it to and she goes it's broken it's she like gets them and like mm-hmm. runs away like as if she as, as, as she was like freaking out about like you know something else instead of like actually she legit twisted the arm around i remember one of my train par- partners sat by he was he was competing in like uh, his teen division but he looked at it and he he just had a smile and he went cool <laughs> exactly <laughs> no not cool I, I, I'm not, but us as adults were like oh no, no that's not that's gonna leave a mark mm-hmm. but he was like cool <laughs> and the other thing about jujitsu athletes taking on all these injuries this isn't a sport like basketball or football where you're getting paid millions of dollars mm-hmm. you know i joked to someone the other day i was like the best thing people can expect in jujitsu is a show your role sponsorship mm-hmm. in some ways like they just hope some gi company throws them some money. Just so they don't for... have to pay for a gi. Yeah. It's not even like you're, you're getting... Like they give them gis. Some companies will give like money now. Yes. But it's still... That's, that's rare, right? That's rare. Like basically if you're a top five black belt... And, you... and, and at that point, you can't even like rest on your laurels. You got to be like... You're doing seminar tours. You're competing. Time. Like there's no... 
like these uh, i doubt half these guys have health insurance <laughs> like i've seen so many jujitsu go fund me's for back surgery knee surgery really yeah i've seen a few of them because people not my friends but people who will share them from other people so i've seen a few of them it's like help this guy with his ACL tear. I mean, I've heard of GoFundMes and Patreons for like creative endeavors, like a movie mm-hmm. or a music album, but for actual like injuries and surgeries, they do this. Well, I think GoFundMe just stated that I think one in three, it's either one in three or one in five of their campaigns are for medical related expenses. You know what? Now that I think about it, I'm, I've seen it for like cancer fundraisers or, yeah. or something of this sort. I don't. I guess I've never associated it with uh, what we're talking about right now, which is, you know, a jujitsu injury, because it's kind of like, eh, it's, it's common enough where you, you knew what you were getting yourself into, you know, you kind of like were in control. I don't know. I, I could be off on that. Yeah. And like, <clears throat> there's no one, very few people in jujitsu are getting rich off jujitsu. So people have these dreams of becoming black belt world champions and doing well for themselves. But after you win the title, there's no money prize for mm. winning the world championships. Like you have these titles, you can't, that medal is not going to feed you. You need to be constantly hustling like seminars, schools. That's right. And it's, it, it's kind of like you, you become your own marketing person. You be, you basically have to win these tournaments in order to, um, if we have, if we have to draw like kind of like a, a Hollywood movie, uh, correlation, it's like, you're this famous actor. You have to keep pumping out these Hollywood hits. Yeah. That not only are people going to come see, but then you have to like go to all the awards dinners. You have to do all these talk shows and you have to, and you have to get ready for the next movie to keep your name out there. So kind of the same thing. <coughs> Excuse me. But instead of doing movies, you got to keep winning these matches and high profile tournaments. And then as, as you said, what do they have to do now? They have to do like seminar tours became popular. And I've noticed now there are a lot less people going to seminars because there are now so many black belts doing them. Mm. And now, like, online learning sites are becoming popular. I'm part of Jason Scully's website, The Grappler's Guide, which I love. I've been mm-hmm. a member since I was a white belt because I used to train at his gym. I remember seeing when he first started up. Yeah, with, it's with a changed lot of so much. Yeah. He has so many guest experts on now. The, the peak for me was I, I enjoyed his, like, you know, 20 arm bars from the yeah. guard. And it was just like a... a like a one minute video, but just boom, boom, yeah. boom. And, and like, him talking real fast. And then you can do this. And then also, you can only go through a turtle. And it was <laughs> That's great. how he started I to get it. famous. He put out, I think it was like yes. 50 half guard sweeps in eight yes. minutes, something uh-huh. like that. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's a great site, but that's another thing. There are so many video sites. There's like, there's Marcelo's, there's Jason's, the Mendes brothers, Braulio Estima, Bouchesha, Lucas, JT is starting one. So it's, there's so many, it's saturated. Satur- yeah. Like jujitsu is no one's, you're not going to see giant stadium level mm-hmm. of people watching a jujitsu tournament. It just, it's a niche sport. It is what it is. There's a limited amount of money you can make off of it. What did you think as far as uh, people uh, wanting to promote uh, Brazilian jujitsu in the Olympics? Remember that whole thing? I saw. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. What, what was your take on that? I, I think they're going to have to really... I think they'll put even more rules in if it goes to the Olympics, which I'm not for. If it goes what? If it goes into the Olympics, I yeah. think they would put even more rules in and restrict it more. And I've heard this was one of the problems with... It was either judo or taekwondo going to the Olympics. Like, they banned a bunch of moves and people were not happy. And I think we'll see the McDojoification of jujitsu. 
Can you go into that term for people who mm-hmm. are the non-martial artists listening to this? <laughs> so McDojo is basically a gym where they don't, they hand out belts very easily. They're not teaching you the real techniques. You often don't spar. Um, and it's just more, it's basically to make you feel better and for them to make money. And I think this was rampant in a lot of uh, other martial arts, right, prior. Yeah, like it's <clears throat> happened in karate, taekwondo. I don't know. I, I feel like those are the two most commonly cited examples. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure it's happened in other. And now it's starting. And you, do you feel it's starting to happen with jiu-jitsu as well, too? I think, I think it's starting to happen. Like, I can already, I've, I've been to a bunch of schools, like, over the years, visited when I'm traveling or even when I'm home, different schools in New Jersey, and you can tell that there are some schools that don't emphasize hard sparring. Mm -hmm. And I think the best part about, one of the best things about jujitsu is that you can go basically 100% and not get injured. You know, because you have the tap, which one of your guests called the reset button. (laughs) I remember. I forgot which one. Because as I said, I've had so many (laughs) jujitsu people on. It was probably Mario. That's a good one. The reset button. Button. But go ahead, yeah. But yeah, you can go hard, but you can tell there are schools where they don't really emphasize the mm-hmm. hard training. And that's the most important part, in my opinion. You get to you get to test your techniques in a live setting. Isn't that interesting as far as, it's almost counterintuitive. Like, I, you can go as hard as you can and not get injured in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. I, and I, it's very specific to jiu-jitsu as opposed to, let's say, a striking art. Like, if you go 100% in Muay Thai or you go 100% in, like, boxing. You're going to have some problems. Oh, boy. <laughs> Jeez. Good luck trying to maintain that clip and not, like, get pissed off at your partner or not get injured but one of the drawbacks of people like sparring right sparring's Mm. fun that's everyone's favorite part the first part of class um you know you do a couple techniques you drill them on both sides and everyone's like yay we get to spar but i think one of the problems in jujitsu compared to um ben askren had talked about this one of his frustrations with jujitsu versus wrestling he said in wrestling we will drill the same move over and over and over and over again like one class will be just drilling. And in jiu-jitsu, everyone's just waiting to get to the sparring, which is great, but you don't build the same technique base. And I think if we started to do that in jiu-jitsu, the reason it's not done is because no one wants to go after a hard day of work to just drill half guard mm-hmm. sweeps for an hour and a half. That mm-hmm. would not be fun mm-hmm. for people. So once again, context. And also uh, just to go back to like one of the first points you brought up about people who train and do like the... Uh, 365 training um is goals like some people yeah they want to become world champion and others are exactly as you said this is their this is uh, as soon as they're done with a hard work day blow off some steam yeah i was i wanted to run this by you because i think i started talking about this um as far as the, the three areas to go with sparring in uh, jiu-jitsu. And I think this kind of applies to just a lot of arts, whether it be playing guitar, music, whether it be um, just anything where there's a final product and you actually have to practice like a skill. There's theory, there's practice, and then there's um, uh, actual sparring, or what what, what was the generalized term? Theory, practice, and training. Okay. And training. So theory, uh, we can talk about it. We can look on online videos. We can read about it. 
uh, about a said technique. It could be told to you, it could be shown to you, et cetera, et cetera. And it's for you, for your mind in order to start building the, you know, the, the neural pathways to start um, absorbing into your brain. Then there's practice. Okay, enough talk. Let's actually get on the mat. And I think this is what uh, Askren was talking about. Let's start do, use, uh, doing the moves in a controlled environment, minimal to no resistance. And then he goes up and up. He's like, it'll be mm-hmm. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50%. Eventually, you, you get to Sparring. training training where it's practice but now you've implemented uh stress factors whether it be time limit whether it be now an opponent that's actually resisting and you can start increasing that amount of resistance and that's for actual quote real life scenario and uh full implementation of the technique and if you don't have um a good balance among those three practice uh, 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 as far as theory practice and training something is is gonna come off yeah. And it, some people need a little more than others. Others need two more. Others mm-hmm. need, uh, maybe some someone needs all three. But I I think that, yeah, in, in certain jiu-jitsu schools, there, there's some there, they, they overemphasize the training. And then you don't get enough uh, theory or practice in. And they're kind of just like Very left. true. In other words, you, it's like you go to swim and it's like, all right, we're just going to go swim. Ooh, throw you in the pool. <laughs> Deep end. Go. <laughs> Stay afloat. What are you doing? Come on. Just Exactly. Anyway. And so when, what do you what do you think of that as far as that breakdown? I think that's pretty cool. I think I wish more people in jiu-jitsu structured their training mm. that way. I think it's so cuz jiu-jitsu is still a very new martial art in the landscape of martial arts, so mm-hmm. we don't have that process down just yet. And I think that process is there for schools that have dedicated competition teams and that's mm-hmm. what the competition team gets, but they should implement that some way into their students. Like I don't know if you've seen Clips of the Mendez brothers teach. Yeah, I have. They're so, I love those guys. They're so good at... They are very good teachers, and I think a lot of their black belts are very good teachers, too, from what I've heard. And such a... It's such a pristine, calm-looking dojo, too. Oh, my God. Have you ever seen a cleaner dojo than that? It kind of freaks me out. The, whole, the complete white... White. It, it, it looks like something out of a Matrix movie, right? Yeah, and I noticed a lot of other schools have done that. Oh, they after. have? Like, so I used to train... Um, in grad school at this gym called Maximum Athletics, mm-hmm. they had, it was like they had Taekwondo, Jiu-Jitsu, and the guy who taught, his name is Dave, he's really good. It was initially Nelson Puentes, who owns Inverted Gear, who was the head instructor. Then he moved away, and his black belt, Dave, um, started teaching. And he was a really good teacher, but now they have a dedicated Jiu-Jitsu space instead of being in the Taekwondo gym. Mm. And it's all white. The walls are white. The mat is white. The changing room's white. <laughs> It, it offers quite that environment. You think it's for the calming effect or, or like a wow factor? What do you think it is? One of those two. I don't know. I don't find it calming. It's like it's so bright. It's so bright, you know, like I don't think it's I don't find it stressful, but I also mm-hmm. don't find it calming. I had brought up um, just to go on a slight tangent. We may fall down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I started talking about a little bit about, about guitar because I didn't know this about you. You had mentioned that uh, uh um, emphasizing your jiu-jitsu training actually took away from your guitar playing. You play guitar. Yes, not well. Oh, but. okay. <laughs> so I started taking lessons in high school, mm-hmm. and it was this guy who he had, you could tell this guy like probably wanted to be a rock star, but had a career oh, in finance. Who, <laughs> who like had a career in finance, and now he was retired. He was teaching at a local community college, but on the weekends for something, it was like, I think it was 20 bucks an hour. He would teach you guitar. He was such a laid back guy. He seemed like such a hippie. His name was Jim. I miss that guy. He was so, and he had the lessons were in this 
It was like a man cave almost. It had like pictures of all his favorite artists. All the books were guitar books. Like he was so into it. It was fun, but it was very casual. Yes. You know, he would just take guitar tabs from guitar magazines and he was like, we're going to learn to play this Mm -hmm. because I played the flute for 10 years. So I knew how to read music. Yes. And I played the piano for a little bit. Um, So I knew how to read music. We didn't have to go over that much, but we would just pick random guitar tabs and learn to play them. Did you ever find any correlation between how you learn guitar as well as going into jujitsu? In in fact, to even add on to that question, (laughs) how did you get into jujitsu? How did I get into jujitsu? So I did karate for 10 years. I got my black belt in that when Tiger Shulman's was still a karate school. Mm -hmm. Um, And I went to college in Atlanta. I went to a school called Emory University. And I didn't have a car, so I couldn't really make my way out anywhere else. Um, I was on the rowing team for two years. Mm. Tried that out. Not that great at it. Also, not that tall. So, (laughs) And... um, I was looking up just martial arts gyms, and I found a gym. They had Muay Thai Jiu-Jitsu. I wasn't looking for Jiu-Jitsu, um, but there's no karate gym. So they saw they had Muay Thai. I did that for a year. I did one Muay Thai smoker and one. Um, and I saw a Jiu-Jitsu going in the next room, and Karen was actually teaching the class. So I went in, and I was like, wow, this is super fun. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what helped is me and two other girls who were doing Muay Thai, we all went and started at the same time. Uh, So we had that little support system. So I got my blue belt right as I graduated college, and I came back up and just kept training. Awesome. And so you caught the bug right right away. It it was never anything where it's like, oh, this is not for me. It just just immediately. Yeah. I was also just so beat after the first class. Like the warm-ups alone, I was... (laughs) Because it's such a... It's a different kind of tiredness. Mm-hmm. or stress than you feel in Muay Thai or karate or running because I'm a runner as well. I did cross country in middle and high school and it was such a different kind of like stress and activity. Using muscles you don't ever really use. Actually. Oh yeah. Especially the, the um, what were some of the initial things that um, you were like, what? I got to do what? One of the first things, someone collar choked me and I didn't know that was a legal thing. Like someone just did the cross yeah. collar choke from closed car and I was like, what? You can do that? <laughs> I, my first thought was he cheated. Yeah. Because I didn't know what was going on. But then mm-hmm. I was like, oh, like you can use the uniform. You can use the lapels. And that was pretty cool to me. That was one of the biggest things that blew me away when, when starting to do like, it, it's almost the creative aspect. Um, did you did you see any um, correlation between how you started learning a little bit of music or any or anything with jujitsu, or you never really drew anything yet? Not so much because I started learning music. I started playing the piano when I was five or six. Mm-hmm. Um, ah, okay. And that's like there's a lot of theory. I remember learning like how to read music and the time and the rests and the notes and all that. And that's more much more systematic. Very rigorous. Very right? rigorous. Yeah. Very. Uh, what do they call it? it? Begins with R. Route learning. Rote, Rote learn? learning, Rote I learning. think, yeah. Right? Yeah. Not, yeah. Probably not fun as well, too. Right? <laughs> I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't think of it as fun or not fun. It's just something I did. Yeah. You know? Was it something that you you voluntarily went into? Or, or My your parents fam- put me in mm-hmm. piano lessons, and I liked it, I think, when I was a little. I didn't like practicing. That was uh, the thing. I was so bad. I Like, the day before my lesson, yeah. I would practice a lot, and then... Just to, like, not suck or yeah. get yelled at by the teacher, right? Yeah. So that was... <sighs> That was my biggest problem with 
the piano and the flute. Piano, I finally told my parents I wanted to quit when I was in the seventh grade. And they said, sure. What made you finally want to... It was just so... Going to lessons every week was so hard. Like, I just got no pleasure out of it. Did it... It felt like... It just felt like such a chore. Yeah. Like the day before. And you just didn't want to go through that slog of having to like, all right, I'm going to cram a week's worth of practice into Mm -hmm. this hour. Yeah, and... Even so, my mom wanted me to play another instrument. And I remember she took me to the music store and we looked at all the things and I picked the flute and my mom was like, are you sure? That's a really tough one. You enjoyed it? And Well, mm. here's the thing. For the first couple of years, it was fine. And then it became a drag. I still did it. Um, like I played in middle school band. I played my freshman year. I played in high school band. And I stopped after that and I still took lessons. But I, after my junior year, I stopped because it was... School was getting really intense, and I was doing karate, so that was my other activity. And I just, it wasn't fun. I actually had a bittersweet moment a year ago. I donated my flute mm-hmm. to um, someone who teaches at a middle school in the city, and they were looking for instrument donations. So I said, yes. this is the, I think this is what I should do. Man, that's interesting. Do you think you can remember the, the, the specifics of when it, uh, when like, the tipping point happened. I was like, this is just such a drag that it's not that I want to quit. It's just that I, yeah. I've lost the the want to even want to like pick it up anymore. I think high school was the big... Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure why. Social pressures or... Not even. It was hmm. just... I don't know. Like I did cross country, just doing karate. I love to read. And I was just... It like, just fell down the prioritization yeah, list. Yeah. It just ah. came lower and lower. I... My... I... I was in classical piano and then eventually when i heard metallica i was like i want to play guitar and well i thanked you know my parents and my piano teacher for all the experience because that really came into play being able to because the teacher was like uh, my first guitar lesson he was like okay this is an e this is a c and I, and I go oh yeah that's a d g oh that's a g chord there and goes do you know how to read music i'm like yeah he goes okay cool and he tosses like the first the whole book <laughs> He goes, you just saved yourself about, uh, you know, six months of lessons. And then he goes, okay, here, you're going to learn the Aeolian mode, which is like, it started like now we're doing like music improvisation. I'm like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. No, I don't get to have music in front of you. No, you have to learn the scale and then you have to uh, come up with uh, with, uh, music on the spot, like in your head. And I I went, what? I had no, no idea what that was. But it could be learned as far as improvisation. And I was able to take parts of that. And then apply it to, uh, imagine when you actually go into jiu-jitsu and they say, okay, you're going to spar. And you go, wait, wait, what, wait, wait, what? what do, wait, what do I do? And it goes, just use the technique. But like this guy's doing all this, <laughs> other, this other stuff. Just try, you, you know, it's also that teaching thing. Like, how do you teach someone to spar? Par. You know, how was that? How was sparring ever taught to you? Or was it, or is it, or was it It was like, very much at my first gym. Like you just, you, you just go. Like they would put the white belts together. Really? And you just go. And I never, I've, I don't think I rolled against too many crazy people in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there are a lot of people that started around the same time I did at our gym. Well, why don't you define what, what you mean by crazy people? Because it's, it's, like, like, it's not like, you know, like spazzy, a mental... Like people there you go, go who spaz out and will crank something too hard or will just like do something in such a hurt... Herky-jerky motion. Explosive motions where... Basically no technique, lots Mm -hmm. of explosiveness, and, like, limbs flying everywhere. (laughs) 
and uh you didn't have to go through that too much right not when not as much sessions. as i think some of my friends have mm-hmm. in jiu-jitsu um and i think the difference between improvising in music and improvise and sparring in jiu-jitsu is you're doing jiu-jitsu as a reaction mm. against someone else or as an action to someone else mm-hmm. and music is just you're you're just doing it in and of itself Really? It's not in any other context. Like when you're improvising, like you may do it as on like a certain scale, mm-hmm. but in Judas, it's like, okay, someone's doing this to me, so uh, I'm going to have to do this. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there, there's, there's some things with, with music, especially in a solo context, if you, if you think about it. Like if I had to sit there and it was just by myself, I had to come up with music on the spot. Yeah. There's not as much of that external stimuli that I have to re- react to. <coughs> um, I think uh, as far as musicians... Um, that if they're in an ensemble, let's say they're playing with, with the band, with the drummer, with the bassist, there is some listening, there is communication going on. So there is like some type of, uh, give and take that, that you can do. Um, it's, it's something that I, I try to like explain sometimes whenever I, I teach jujitsu every once in a while and I run into people who, who've taken music before. I'm like, hey, you ever play with a drummer? You ever play with a bass player? Yeah, yeah, you ever hear them and you have to like react? Yeah, it's like that. It's like <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I try to convey that uh, to them, and I would say that as I was going through like kind of the initial learning of it, it was I was always a pretty good like decent like quick learner, and it was also coupled with with the fact that like I loved Karate Kid growing up, <laughs> and also my dad my dad <laughs> told me like as soon as you know um like from four when i was four years old all the way up to when i graduated college that he's don't take any martial arts because your job is to learn not to fight so imagine like all right graduated college i get to take a course Ah, here we go yes so i was able to um get into it uh relatively quick and also i really really wanted to learn it how was the learning experience for you going into uh jujitsu or anything else and for that matter the learning experience in jiu-jitsu. Um, so I think the toughest part was in jiu-jitsu, and I think this is a common thing that is not talked about a lot, people in sparring will often t- go to where they're most comfortable. And that was my biggest problem in mm. learning in jiu-jitsu. Like you learn all these techniques in class and you go back to what you're comfortable with. People are, a, a lot of times I've noticed, are not willing to open up and try new games and new techniques unless they're perfect at it. But you're never going to be perfect at it unless you try it in sparring. Like, even a couple of weeks ago, actually, I asked Shaolin, I said, you know, like, um, what do you think I could do to improve? And he said, you know, like, I was watching you spar. You, your half guard is good, but it's all you do. You play it all the time. You pull half guard. You find your way there, and you do the sweep. And he said, like, you need to inter- – I want to see you playing, like, butterfly, spider, anything else. Like, I want to see you – using all these other techniques. Because I think a lot of people are concerned about winning during mm. sparring. And I realized I was. And I was like, oh, like, who cares? Mm-hmm. Like, I just need to... Break out the comfort zone, right? Yeah, like, I started, I've been doing <clears throat> the butterfly half. So, mm-hmm. think about also half guard, you just kind of end up there a lot. You know, if someone's trying to pass, they're going to put you in half guard. So, now I've been trying to get the butterfly hook in, get the butterfly, do the hook sweep. That kind of stuff. Baby steps. Still yeah. hanging on to what you know. Yeah. And except if they now pa- branching out. And if they pass while I'm trying to get the butterfly hook in, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I just need to keep doing it until I start getting it. And then you f- you find all the small adjustments that someone can't teach you. So everyone in jiu-jitsu, I think, makes their techniques their own. Mm-hmm. Like, you and I probably 
do butterfly guard and half guard and spider guard very differently from the yes. other. I try to emulate Marcelo. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I, my, my first ever going into jujitsu, um, butterfly guard, X guard or arm drags, all of it, uh, rear naked choke, north south <laughs> choke, all of it Marcelo. And so, <laughs> so when you were, uh, as you were seeing a, a lot of this, as you see a lot of people go into jiu-jitsu and they're uh, attempting to learn, and I think we were talking about this before uh, we started the podcast, that even the kind of, not really the art of learning, but just learning in in general, as far as people able to pick it up quickly or absorb it or learn in, in different ways, how was learning in general for you, um, as we were talking about previously? Okay, learning in general. So I've had some learning difficulties as a kid. Um, and school was very hard for me. Reading was very hard for me. And so I had some really amazing teachers that helped me throughout the way. My mom, like, I can't thank my mom enough. She was extremely patient with me, like learning to read. And my dad was extremely patient with helping me in math. And like, it's just not everyone, like the model of going into a school and 30 kids are going to be taught the same way is like, I don't think it's the best model. I mean, it's the best we've gotten right now perhaps, but when you have 30 people, you have 30 different minds, people, there may be three or four different like learning styles for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, so I think it's about learning what, what works best for you and how you can understand what's being talked to you. Like, and I don't, you don't grow out of some of your difficulties. Like you don't grow out of learning these abilities. You don't grow out of these things. You grow into them. Mm. So you learn like how you approach problems. You approach them differently than someone else. Your problem-solving techniques are different than someone else's problem-solving techniques. And ultimately, when you, as you go through school and you get out into the world, like you will apply those problem-solving techniques to your interests. And your interests will be based on your strengths and your learning style. And do you think that there's kind of like a, uh, a public um, or a general like, kind of like misconception about learning disabilities that like at a certain point, if you learn enough to deal with it, the disability goes away? Yeah, sense, I think a lot like of it, people... It magically just, disappears or something. Oh, yeah. People think that a lot of these difficulties, whether it's learning disabilities or any other difficulties you might have, like go away. Like even stuff like social anxiety, I don't think it goes away. You learn to deal with it. Mm. And I think you have... I think a lot of parents, for example, that have kids that have problems, they're so focused on, quote unquote, curing that mm. kid instead of accepting that kid for who he or she is and helping them gather the techniques and methods that they need to succeed. And it makes it like, I don't like that method of all of saying like, my kid needs to be cured. My kid needs to be changed. Like, no, your kid just needs to learn the best way for them to thrive and survive and you are hitting the hallmark of 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 dear warren podcast right now which <laughs> is giving this parental advice this uh what is it vaccine parenting <laughs> advice which I'm, I'm i'm loving right now so i i guess you've seen that in in the past or um experienced or know people who uh or know someone who knows someone as far as going in and attempting to not really accept, no, I'm not going to accept this. I'm going to change. I'm going to change my kid. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I've seen like, you know, I think there's a stereotype of Asian parents putting a lot of pressure on their kids, and I've seen that a lot. But my parents are just very like, they said you need to find what you're passionate about, and you can do well in that. They were never, they weren't the kind of people who are like, okay, like, 
less than an A, you're in trouble. You know what I mean? They were, they wanted me to do well. And they said, you know, if I got a bad grade, they said like, it was always, how can we help you? Like, I got bad grades in physics. They helped me get a physics tutor. I got bad grades, bad grades in math. Like my dad would help me with math. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a very intense. They weren't mean about it. You know, they wanted yes. to help me. And do you think that's this is specific to your to your parents though, right? Or do you think it, it's more of the the an, an Asian kind of like parent thing in general? What do you think it was? I don't know. They were just very like. <clears throat> I think a lot of parents, I think a lot of people, like if someone isn't doing well in school or has more trouble, they think that they're dumb. You know, I feel like I Mm. hear people call other people dumb Uh a lot. And I said like, you know, they're just learning it. They need, maybe they need to learn it a little differently. I don't think schools adapt to this well. I still don't think a lot of parents adapt to that well. And it's as society becomes more diverse, I think we're, we maybe will have to move away from the classroom model that we have right now. Oh yeah, the the, the classroom model, if if I recall, like reading about it, it's it's based off of what was you know the industrial revolution yeah. when it came around. We it's need, creating we need good a, workers. We need a lot more factory workers, and then that, think about how a lot of those like uh, grammar school classroom setups are rows. They're right? set up like prisons. Yeah, they're set up in rows. Even the bells. They're, they're meant to kind of like condition Start you. Start your be day a, with the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, they're, they're meant to, exactly as you said, like as a factory worker, which is, um, did you, outside of that, you know, the what everyone, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are listening, have, have grown up through that type of school system. Were there any other uh, courses you took um, or alternative kind of like classroom structures or uh, curriculum that you saw that, I actually enjoyed this, or I'd like that to be promoted a little more. So once I got to college, I think that classes encourage a lot more discussion, Mm -hmm. which I think is great. And I'm sure that's difficult to do for really young kids. But I think as kids get older, and especially when you learn history, right? I don't think we're taught history well at all. Mm. It's because history is written by the victors. But I think if you had a bunch of kids, you say, you know, like, what do you think about what happened during this war or how this constitutional amendment was passed? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if you encourage that discussion, you're teaching, you're effectively teaching kids to think instead of just memorize these dates, memorize these battles. And I think a lot of people who oppose to stuff like discussion and people are people who have benefited from the classroom model. Cause let's be, if you benefit from a system, you're probably not going to criticize it. True. At the same time, I, I, I did benefit from the, the, the classroom model. I was, I was pretty good at it. At the same time, once I saw like other systems, I was like, dude, this is even better. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I think, uh, especially like, like I said, like if we take an example, like the, the music edu- education program, I think old school way was a big focus on what you were talking about. Learn your rests, learn your notes, yeah. <clears throat> do this exactly this way. See this sheet? I'm going to put this in front of you. You have to play it. And there's a score from zero to 100. Try to get that 100. Versus, like, uh, I'm sure maybe your guitar teacher was, as you said, it it was just so more chill. Yeah. He was just a grown-up hippie. A grown-up hippie, but at the same time, (laughs) the way he was probably approaching with you, did he sit it down? All right, I'm going to grade from zero to 100. No. Exactly. (laughs) So it's a bit of that and... uh, my guitar teacher, as as I said, all right, you're going to improvise on this. I, kn- 
I never heard the word improvise until I, <laughs> until I sat down in front of a guitar <laughs> teacher and they were letting me know about that. And it was just another avenue of thinking that has never been really uh, stressed. Kind of like when you were uh, mentioned discussion. I, I, yeah, when you when you think about it, I don't think there was ever really a full-on discussion. Maybe, you know, once you start and get to middle school or definitely in high school, especially if you, uh, depending on the course that you took. But I don't think there was really that much in elementary school where let's sit down and have a full-on discussion about yeah. this event or whether it be uh, past, present, or a future one. And I think part of that is, you know, schools are structured where, you know, they're expected to produce these numbers to get funding. Mm. You know, you, you have to get this much on st- these standardized tests, and then we'll give you this much funding. We'll give you whatever other opportunities the school can get. And it's unfortunate. Like, I think it was No Child Left Behind in during Bush's era, mm-hmm. where we started narrowing curriculums to these standardized tests. So now people are great at taking standardized tests, that, which doesn't replicate anything they'll have to do in their life and like i don't know i think it's happening even more i've heard this from my friends who are teachers who said you know we spend a third of our year teaching these kids to take a test that has nothing to do with anything and unfortunately these tests as you as you as you were saying this is how they get the funding and it's mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of like is it is it a what do, what do you call it a, a chicken and an egg problem can't you know give the proper resources to teach your kids or give them like the, the best uh, education experience if we don't have the money at the same time, I can't get the money if they don't pass these tests, you know? So, and I heard this awful story from someone who's a teacher. He was mm-hmm. saying that he has a kid in his classroom who has some learning difficulties. And the, um, the principal basically said, Oh, like we should try and get him out of our school. So he doesn't bring down our numbers. Oh, so isn't, is that not Fuck terrible? That. that is terrible. That's awful. You know, that is, man, at, at that point, it's, it's something that would, you know, it's talked about a lot these days as far as trying to keep a bit of humanity and everything like that's, it's not, it's not as that person's thinking of that kid as a stat versus mm-hmm. that's someone's kid. You know? Yeah, that's a person. That person needs help. You should be helping mm-hmm. that student. Man, it's. I don't think you ever really had to go through anything of that sort, right? So as you were as you were progressing through, um, and, and and addressing whatever uh, disabilities that that you had, it got better and better. Or um, did the how how were the reactions of um, everyone around, whether it be parents or teachers. Uh, they were all very that. supportive. Mm-hmm. Like I consider myself <clears throat> very lucky. And over time I've had much more empathy for kids who have these problems because I know my parents, they had the time and the money to help me with all the stuff. They had the time and money to get me tutors, to teach me themselves. Mm. Like they're both like educated enough that they could help me with my homework. That didn't even occur to me that there are kids out there whose parents might not be able to help them. Mm-hmm with their homework and I don't know what the solution is, you know, but like if a kid has a problem, parents should be able to somehow get those resources, whether it's the school or a nonprofit or something. I don't know, but yeah, it's such a big, it, it balloons into such a bigger problem. And I think I was very naive in assuming that everyone else could get the help that I did. 
Is this something that you uh, attempt to address um, working in government or um, that this is something <laughs> tangential or not even related to it? No, I mean, I'm in transportation. Mm-hmm. I work at the Department of Transportation. Um, I think education is such a big monster that I'm not prepared <laughs> to conquer. But I mean, transportation is a big monster, too. Yeah. Funny thing is, I've worked in city government now for like almost four years. Mm-hmm. Like, I think in the context that I've worked, it's been much less punch in, punch out, do your thing, mm-hmm. come in at nine, leave at five. Like I've, I've had a couple interesting, I worked at Taxi and Limousine Commission and they regulate Uber, Lyft, all the yellow cabs, all the green cabs. And now I'm at the Department of Transportation where I analyze crash data to help make New York City streets safer. Very nice. This is the, this is the data, uh, uh, data, the data science, science that you were yeah. talking about. Please go into that. Cause. So yeah, that, um, so I am in the safety analytics and mapping group. So we take on a lot of data requests within the agency. So for example, the red light camera people may come to us and say, you know, we want to see where more red light cameras, like which are the highest crash locations that don't have red light cameras. Can I make a bad dad joke? Yeah. Is there a yellow light camera group and a green light camera group as well too? <laughs> I'm done. Please go on. <laughs> so, yeah, like <laughs> oh, that man, would be oh, an example man. of something. You know, we have a school safety division and they'll come to mm-hmm. us um, and we'll crunch numbers for them. Uh, so it's a lot of stuff around that. But it's New York City is so big and you can't compare neighborhoods to each other. They're all so different. Um, and the way like we will... I'm in the research arm. It's research implementation and safety is the mm-hmm. division is the bigger division that I'm in under because I'm safety analytics and mapping it above that is research implementation safety. So I'm the research side. We crunch the numbers, we hand it to the implementation people and they, um, they decide what street treatments, maybe it's changing signal timings, making a bigger pedestrian Island, like left turn signal, that kind of stuff. Are you able to, once you crunch the numbers and you look at them can you kind of predict what they what recommendations they're going to make, or do you even say something? Like, hey, I saw these numbers. You may want to change the timing. I do, can, you, do you get to do any of that? I don't do that stuff as much, but uh-huh. actually, in my interview, they had me do that. My interview was wild. They gave me a um, they gave me a list of crash statistics and said, based on these crash statistics, how do you think the street currently is? Hmm. They said, like, because I, I even emailed him, I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, do you think it's a local street? Do you think it's a highway? Where do you think it is in the city? Oh, so I had to, like, you had to reverse engineer the data. I basically had to reverse engineer. And he said, make recommendations based on these data. Nice. Like how, like what street treatments you would do. Mm-hmm. So I think they wanted someone who could see it, the, re- the data and the implementation. But I haven't really done, I haven't recommended Okay. Anything personal, you know? Did you ever see anything crazy? Like, um, or something just stuck out in your, in, in your mind of when you were looking at this and like, oh, wow, that's actually really good or really bad. I mean, the biggest thing to me was that there are so many crashes mm-hmm. that happen all the time. And I think um, people don't realize how dangerous driving really is. I heard, you know, that this is the old old statistic, <laughs> one in six chance every single time you get in a car, you get in an accident, or is it, your eyes just, your eyebrows just raised. Please, yeah. go on, go ahead. <laughs> I've never heard that, but I think people, and a lot of car crashes happen within a mile of your home, yep, I think. that I've heard too. And 
I have, all, I'm very risk averse generally. So mm-hmm. like, I know some people will have a couple of drinks and then drive. I will not. Unless it's been hours. I just don't feel comfortable That's doing it. That's a drinking it. machismo there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fine. Yeah. Like Watch if, me. If I have a glass, like if I have a glass of wine and then I drive home three hours later, I'm fine with that. But mm-hmm. if I know I'm driving, I will not have more. Of course. Than one drink, you know? Yep. And I think a lot of people like, you know, I've seen, you know, you see people texting and driving people who are like, I honestly, I'm sure people check like Facebook and Twitter <laughs> while they're at red lights and stuff. And it's just the smallest crash. Like even if you're going what's like slow 15, 20 mile an hour, you hit someone, mm-hmm. they're going to be really hurt, yep. you know? Uh, and I just think. I think a lot of people don't realize that. I, ultimately, I think people, driver education should be much different. I don't think a lot of people realize the risks. Oh, you, you haven't seen the New Jersey driving test. <laughs> Jesus. It literally, uh, what is it? Make a right turn, make a left turn, stop, back up, I did park. Take the, I took the New Jersey driving test. You remember that? It was yeah. only like five things. And then it's like parallel, parallel park. park in this really big spot. <laughs> in this really big spot. Uh, okay, you're done. You pass. And you're like, what? what? Do you realize I'm going to be on the road tomorrow? <laughs> so yeah i don't think people realize how dangerous it is Mm -hmm. to drive and we always tell pedestrians look both ways before you cross but i don't think we tell drivers as Mm -hmm. much you know look make sure there's no one crossing the street like if there's a child or an elderly an elderly person you know wait longer be more aware it's just i don't know what it is but did you did you notice a, a, a significant type of like crash increase or well obviously there must have been because there's signs everywhere like you know the blinking uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, signs that say don't uh, like stop looking at your phone look up or or something pay attention to the road like a bunch of signs addressing exactly what you were talking about as far mm-hmm. as the rise of smartphones popularity of it and yeah, then and people are looking at their phones while they're crossing the street it's oh, oh. while they're driving it's insane. <laughs> I've seen people walk into like fire hydrants or walk smack dab into into street signs while walking. Just oh my look God, down yes. in front and then boom, just that's always great. That's what you deserve for looking down and not looking up. And I think in a, in America especially, we think public transit is for lack of a better word for poor people. Mm. Like I think we think of it that way. New York is a little different, but people just think, oh, I don't want to get on that bus with all those other people. I don't want to, I don't want to be with some crazy guy. Um, but like, what, think of how many people one subway car carries. Yeah. And when you think of how many cars that would be on the road, mm-hmm. if all those people drove, like it's 90%, 97% of the time, your car is sitting somewhere. You're not using it. You know, it's, it's the, it had one point was the best solution we had for a lot of individual trips, but I think we need to integrate more mass tra- transportation, whether it's public, private, whatever. Neil deGrasse Tyson talked about this. He said that once automated cars uh, bec- uh, pretty much become perfected, which he's predicted within the five, next five to ten years, yeah. and, and, and they're all out there, that <coughs> excuse me, that there's going to be a lot less of... Uh, in ba- Basically saying what you just said, where our car spends 90% of the time parked, well, guess what? Once automated cars come into play, everyone else is going to be using your car as well, too. Yeah, and it's 
I think less cars on the road, everyone and well, less that's the traffic thing. accidents. Will there be less cars on the road? Because right now companies like Uber and Lyft rely on a saturation of vehicles available sure. for you to get a ride very quickly. Yeah. So I a lot of people are trying to predict that traffic will go down. I honestly don't know if it will, because if you rely on having so many cars that no one is waiting more than mm-hmm. like i think uber tries to say like, you're not going to wait more than five minutes sure you know if you if that's your goal then there's going to be a ton of cars on the road auto uber <laughs> auto lift <laughs> where you get to order and it just automatically comes to you in in this perfect you know queue and they're all automated and you don't have to worry about said uh you know about uh, uh human intervention human error no well yeah. i'm glad Go you on. mentioned that because i just I read this book. Um, God, why am I blinking? Oh, it's... Oh God, what the... Okay, I'm blanking on the name. It'll come sure. to me. Yep. Um, but it's a basically about how... It's about this woman who was one of the... She was a computer science major in the 90s, like one of the only women in her class. And she said, you know, I got into computer science and technology because everyone said technology is going to solve all these problems. And she said, here I am 20 years later. These problems have not been solved. We have more problems. And technology is flawed because humans are flawed. When mm. we write algorithms, we write our own biases into them. When we write, like, we are not... And I think there's this attitude in places like Silicon Valley where we're five lines of code away from solving every problem. Mm. You know, like, I saw this very <laughs> cringy article a while ago. It's like, will blockchain solve the homelessness problem in San Francisco? And I was oh, like, man. homeless people yeah. don't need blockchain, dude. They need... A lot of other supports that are not blockchain. Yep. And, um, you know, and she says this really great thing. Um, she says, when you have a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Of course. And here we have technology as the hammer. So we think everything like poverty, transportation, education can be solved by technology. I don't think it can be directly solved. Yeah, you're not going to. But like, I block think a lot of those people sure. in positions of power think it can be like what we were going back to before sure but i i do definitely think that like they'll they'll play like an impetus oh, or yeah. accelerate the actual solutions to um, um a, a lot of the the problems that that we have i mean it's it it it's on its way i mean look no further than your local uh you know supermarket or you know stop and mm-hmm. shop shop right whatever it is or even a cvs and just look at all the human cashiers there from 10 years ago and all the human cashiers that are there now, you know, that's, that's just a sign of technology moving its way in of not, not only automated cars, but also automating people there. Automating (laughs) a lot. Like there was, I think it's Uniqlo now has robots that have replaced 90% of its workforce. Wait, what? Who? Yeah. I saw it. It came up on my LinkedIn. Like they have robots now in their warehouse that are taking, and they're like, you know, it's great. We're more Fucking efficient. Robots. We can ship all this stuff out now, but we have all these people that need to do stuff. And mm. in a way, mm-hmm. I think automation is good for something very dangerous mm-hmm. that is not good for humans to do anyway. But, you know, they're even talking about machine learning algorithms for radiology, where they can read those scans. Yes. And you will need, instead of 10 radiologists, you maybe just need one to check mm-hmm. the computer. The data science conference that I, I went to recently, it, it talked to all, they, there was a good stress 
through a lot of the talks near the end, talking about kind of like the ethics of what is going on, especially with <clears throat> machine learning and eventually AI, all the, all this, uh, it's all moving in, in that direction. They did touch upon exactly what you said, like our own inherent biases are built into it. They even said something too, that if you feed, uh, all the cases of what we have right now, and when I say cases like criminal cases, whatever goes mm -hmm. into court, if you, don't, you feed all those court cases into a machine learning mm -hmm. um, um, cluster, what have you, that you're not training it to move ahead with the times, you're just training it to repeat what has happened it, up exactly, until now. yeah. So until there's true, quote, learning, you know, getting off mm -hmm. on a huge technological tangent there i do recognize what what you're saying as far as there are limitations obviously to what we're doing now with technology but at the same time if you compare it to what what we had five ten twenty years ago it's quite a jump it is you really yeah gotta admit it, 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 it's quite a jump it, it's something that uh right here now what we're doing as far as a podcast how easy it will do you realize that if if I had the time and if Warren will let me I mean, he, instead of asking me to watch Paw Patrol later, <laughs> that within, as soon as we're done with this, I can have this publicly available for the world to hear within a half hour. How, cr how crazy is that? It's pretty your, wild. Your spoken word, someone can listen to anywhere in the world. You're exactly what you just said. Every hiccup, every breath that, that, that you took, someone, someone could, could get that. It's pretty wild. Absorbing it right now. And absorb that for everyone listening right now as well, too. I, well, well, maybe one day we'll uh, do more podcasts. We'll go worldwide. <laughs> but anyway. Yes, back to technology. And, oh, the book is called Artificial Unintelligence. Ooh. I like what they did there with the title. Hmm. <laughs> Artificial Unintelligence. And this is to, to go with how kind of like just the limitations of what we have right now, even though with technology moving forward, that as... As much of a silver bullet that it seems like it's not there yet. Is that yeah, basically and, the consensus of it? And I think a lot of people in technology miss, what's it called? Missing the trees for the forest, mm. I think is the phrase. Like Elon Musk, for example. <laughs> he like he wants to have Hyperloop that can get you from, was it LA to San Francisco in an hour? And I was like, that's not the problem we have. The problem we have is someone who lives in Eastern Queens can't get to Midtown mm. on time because the trains don't run properly. You know, those are the people we need to help. And I don't think we should go about creating, I mean, you can find like you want to do Hyperloop from San Francisco to LA, that's your business. But there's a whole lot of people that have a whole lot of other problems that something like that is not going to solve. Didn't you say that uh, when you were in government uh, and you saw a lot of like how there's some flashy problems or uh, implement this solution that's kind of like, it looks really good for if you're running yeah. for office. And then there's just a bunch of like that other stuff where, yeah, those are the difficult problems. But here's the thing I can solve right now that makes me look really good. Yeah. I think that's, isn't that an example of it right there? Elon Musk, he, he wants to have, oh yes, it's Hyperloop. Get me from here mm -hmm. to here. Ooh, that, that's going to look real good on a BuzzFeed article yeah. or something like that. And he, uh, like, I don't want to sound like I just, like I don't like him. He's mm -hmm. very smart mm -hmm. and I'm sure he's going to bring a lot of amazing innovations to the table. But um, he... For example, the he's had problems with production of his vehicle, of the Tesla vehicles. Ford has production down. You know, like car companies have production down to a science. But sure. he doesn't seem like the kind of person who is willing to listen to a lot of other people. 
um what was the other thing uh what was i gonna say about elon oh he got into a very public twitter beef with this guy who's a public transportation researcher this was recent about maybe a year ago now. Oh, okay so his name is Jarrett Walker, the guy, mm-hmm. like his career is in researching public transportation. I'm pretty sure he has a PhD. He's talking about buses and Elon just tweets at him. It must have been, in res- I forget what it was in response to him saying, but he was just like, no one likes trains, trains suck. And they keep going back and forth about how he's like, everyone wants to be in a car, cars are the best. Uh, Elon Musk is saying this. And so they're going back and forth about this. Yeah. And people are trying are starting to pay attention to this guy, Jared Walker, because, you know, Elon Musk is going back and forth with him. And in the midst of this Twitter battle, he goes, by the way, you can buy my new book that I just published on public transportation for 50% off with code Elon. <laughs> it, it, uh, again this it really just sounds like the uh, i see from the big picture in the sense of because uh, i have some friends who are big elon musk kind of like i wouldn't say fanboys yeah they are fanboys anyway that he, he even though he may not be directly especially with the tesla um um directly solving the, uh, the automobile problem or uh just with transportation in general he definitely has provided something out there where Maybe Ford and other car companies were thinking, hmm, should we, do you think the public is ready for an electronic car now? (laughs) But now that Musk has pushed it, it's like, all right, yeah, they're ready. Now they can uh, answer what uh, Musk has put out. You know what I mean? So he's kind of like a driving impetus, once again, for some type of change. Whether it it be because of his uh, uh, very tactful uh, tweets (laughs) that he has out, uh, or... Um, whether it be he, he's trying to break into, yeah, cars are really cool. Here's this electronic car. Mm-hmm. It's going to do, it's going to be able to, you know, cook your dinner <laughs> as, <laughs> as you're driving home or, or something of the sort. And other car, and now other companies have to, all right, we're going to catch up. And, and it, it sounds like the prince has, has woken up. <laughs> we will continue on though, Warren. Because- I wonder if some, with a lot of automation, I sometimes wonder if we're losing parts of our own memories. How so? Like, do you... Can you remember like 10 people's phone numbers off the top of your head right oh, now? Oh, that type of... Uh, like everything is saved. Yeah. I feel like our brains are uploaded into all our devices. That's um, that, 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 that's very true. Yeah. I can't rattle off 10. Now, I would say even when I had like a pencil and paper and then... Oh, we even talked about this a bit before uh, the, the podcast. As you can see here with my paper planner. Yeah. Like ever since I had a planner... Um, which I which I started doing. I was not never into it, and then someone uh, turned me on to it way back in like the the mid two thousands. A lot of mind share has been able to be put yeah. to other things. Yes, I do agree that automation has made my memory suck more. <laughs> my memory was always not great, but now I've realized it's extra not. But to be fair to you, or actually to be fair to us, is it something where? It's not that your memory is not great. It's just now that you've reserved that memory, you've pushed out things such as phone numbers, et cetera, et cetera, that and can be put stored. And Eggs. Mm. Mm. There you go. Do That's you ever a, think of it that way? You're not, you are not the first person to bring that up to me. And I really? feel like since my memory is terrible, I always forget that point. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Wow. You came, were you, did you set that up? That was good. That was a full on circle and it just hit me in the back of the head. Wow. 
Because my head is also full of a lot of useless facts. Mm-hmm. Um, like, avocados are technically in the berry family. Yes. And strawberries are not berries. Mm-hmm. And what other weird stuff? I don't know. There's just, like, so much random stuff I have in my head. So, I don't know. Maybe I should be better about what I keep in my memory. <laughs> did you did you said you stopped using the, the paper planner system? Or yeah, I you... stopped about a year ago because it was so much easier to put it in my Google calendar. Mm-hmm. And I set that I have a reminder the day before and a couple hours before and the week before. What was the reason that you started with the, the planner system in the first place? My mom always told me, keep mm. a paper planner because I'm very disorganized. Okay. Um, keep a paper planner. So starting in college, I kept one because they gave you one for free in the beginning of every school year. Um, so I kept one in college and it just helped me anytime I had a meeting because I am so forgetful. It's, I have to write everything down. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I kept a paper planner for that purpose. Um, and now with just the phone, it's so much easier. Like even now I get emails and Gmail will automatically put the event into my calendar oh there's that darn automation again (laughs) (laughs) now at this point with with being able to plan everything and and getting everything down why do you think people outside of let's say that they they still forget or you see people just still as disorganized why do you think they haven't moved to some type of planning system themselves uh i think as someone who is very disorganized, it seems overwhelming mm. to tackle that problem. Yep. And then, okay, fine, you have the planner. You have to remember to write in it. You know, you have to know that I know as soon as someone tells me something, it has to go in there immediately. Because if I wait more than five minutes, it's leaving my head. You know? This is a big, like, paradigm shift for me because... Um I would I would always consider myself, and, and I, would, I would be told that as growing up. Oh, you know, you know, you're a smart kid, right? I I, I believe that own I believe that bullshit, you know. And then as it, it progressed, yeah, a lot a lot of stuff just kept coming up. Time meetings, just mm-hmm. forgetting thing, and just forgetting. Um, hey, you have to be here. Hey, we were supposed to meet at this time. Hey, you were supposed to get this project <laughs> done at 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 this point. And at a certain point, like, you just realize out of all the things that were never really taught in school that, like, time management, prioritization, organization, Mm -hmm. like, those type of skills itself weren't really, you know, emphasized. Yeah. And then I had to learn that on on my own, which is why I I was very, very intrigued once you started mentioning the the planner system, Mm -hmm. because I actually bought, like, books (laughs) and studied what planning is. Oh, wow. As as weird as... (laughs) That sounds, it's actually a learned, it's a learned skill. And my dad, he's an engineer. He's extremely organized. Mm. He has a file folder for everything. Yeah. Like we have like the car repair file folder, the like maintain, like the maintaining the appliances in the house. We have a folder for that. There's a folder for each of my sisters and I were in high school, like all our documents are in there. And he's so, it's funny though. He's extremely organized at home and his desk looks like a fa- paper factory exploded on it. So... <laughs> And you have an acronym for your dad, too. Oh, yeah. I good to our dad. <laughs> <laughs> Who is... He's, he's like... He's one of the most entertaining people ever. Just because there are a lot of things. He has, like, a lot of... For example, this morning, he heard me wake up. I was going to make myself a bowl of cereal before coming here. He comes running down. He was like, 
no, I don't think you're awake. Like, I'm going to make you breakfast. And he made, like, <laughs> bacon and eggs and naan and all this other stuff. Because he's like, no, you can't have... He, like, made this face of the cereal. He's like, you can't have that. It's the weekend. <laughs> so, like, he heard me pouring the cereal, woke up and ran down to make breakfast. I love that that it, he's had enough of, of and th- this type of impact where... I mean, I call him my dad, dad, but you actually have the, the, the acronym set up for him as well, too. Because I would, I would keep posting things he said on Facebook, and I think someone else called him Gnor Dad. And I was like, that's so, that works so well. That, <laughs> sorry, I'm still, I'm still laughing of, uh, about it, just trying to, to imagine that, that situation. Oh. As we hear in the, in, the, in the background, we can hear the wonderful Jessica reading to Warren as he <gasps> as he has woken up from his, his nap now. But you, you actually did really well. We were able to get in an hour and a half before he decided to wake up. Nice. Time flying. Right. Whoa, it's already an hour and a half. That's it, wild. It is awesome. <laughs> and I think definitely have to have you back on. There's probably a lot more that we have have to cover, but I think that was a, a pretty interesting dive into a bunch. Yeah, that into, into went a bunch of in a lot of directions that I didn't think it would go into. It always does. It always does, and I'm glad it always uh, goes that way because at, at a certain point, uh, remember when I was talking about improvisation. Once you go down somewhere, we're like, oh, I didn't really plan on it, but oh well, let's just do this. Let's see where it goes. And I think I thoroughly enjoyed it. And this I think was really I re- fun. And. I had a lot of fun, and I want to thank you, Ayanti, and we hope to have you on again soon. For sure. Thanks for having me. That's right, everybody. Get yourselves a planner, whether it be digital or uh, analog or on paper or whatever else you got to do. Just don't try to keep it in your head. You're going to forget, just like I did, uh, what I was going to say next. Uh, and that's why I have something in front of me to let me know what to say. Uh, as always, you can get in touch with us at Dear Warren Podcast at Gmail, Instagram, and on Facebook. Thank you all for listening and all the support. We love you all. Hey, that concludes all the pre-recorded episodes and the backlog that I had going. It's time to move forward. Hope to have a bunch of wonderful guests coming to you soon. We will see you next time. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>